This is Ed Charlack, writer-producer on What's New Scooby-Doo, and you're listening to a podcast named Scooby-Doo. Yeah! Hey gang, and welcome to another episode of a podcast named Scooby-Doo, the show that attempts to unravel 50 years of mysteries, meddling kids, and masked villains. My name is Mike Josick, and I'll be your guide through all things ghostly and groovy as I investigate every angle of every mystery and beyond. So grab yourself some Scooby snacks, fire up the mystery machine, and let's start the show. Gentlemen, welcome aboard. I'm Dee Dee Skies, pilot of the Falcon Fury. Follow me. Hello one and all and welcome to episode 36 of the podcast. I've got another great show for you guys with another great conversation. With the release of Scoob on the 21st of July, I wanted to have some interviews that kind of tied in with that release and created some synergy. You're allowed to hate me for using the word synergy. So I've been in contact with a number of people who've worked on the production uh, of that film, of Scoob. And on today's episode, we're going to kickstart that, that series with my conversation with one of the editors of Scoob, Ryan Folsey. Ryan was really fun to talk to, really interesting guy, and I thought he had a lot of really good insights into the production of that film. Part of the process, I mean, I said I wanted to like tie in with the release of, of Scoob, but I also, Scoob was in production for roughly five years, from kind of the initial stages to actual release. And this is kind of giving me an opportunity to sort of interrogate that process, to actually talk to people uh, who've been on the production and kind of find out what was going on over the course of that that five years and like how the film ballooned and contracted and changed uh, I mean there's been so many variations iterations of the script and the film everybody is seeing all the the concept art and the production artwork that's being posted online on Twitter and it's it's showing us stuff that obviously was not in the film characters that were not in the film characters like Grape Ape or Jabberjaw and though I did have this conversation with with Ryan prior to the actual release of the the blu-ray the home video of which I recently did a review actually that review delayed this episode <laughs> I was gonna actually put out this episode and then I felt like that review should come out so apologies if, if you were all like what's up with this review I want to I want to hear Scooby people talking Anyways, although Ryan and I had this conversation prior to the release, uh, he does talk about some of the stuff that we do see in the deleted scenes of the Blu-ray for Scoob. Initially, I kind of lamented the fact that, oh, it's not like this kind of tease where he's telling us, you know, this, this bonus stuff that we haven't seen yet. But I actually, I really like the fact that, I mean, some people probably haven't seen the deleted scenes yet, but also for those of us who have, and then to hear Ryan talk about it, it just kind of creates this connective tissue so I thought that was kind of cool. Lastly, I am continuing the experiment of releasing full interviews. I'm not chopping up conversations into uh, one part or two parts. Uh, there will be an exception coming up and that I probably will split into uh, two parts. And I won't tell you who that's with yet, 
but if it comes in at around an hour, I'm just going to release them like this. And I'm curious what you guys think about it. I don't want to talk about it too much right now. I'll, I'll touch on it again in the outro. So for right now, just sit back, relax, wherever you are, and enjoy my conversation with editor of Scoob, Ryan Folsey. We'll see you on the other side. So my guest today is an editor for film and television. He's worked in both live action and animation, and most recently has been part of the team that brought to fruition a little film called Scoob. Very happy to welcome to the show Ryan Folsey. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Thanks for being here, especially since the uh, DVD is dropping not too long from now, so this will probably be timing out nicely with that. Have a little bit of a little <laughs> synergy. A little overlap. I like it. Uh, so the first question I usually ask all my guests is, what was your first kind of exposure to Scooby-Doo? Were you a Saturday morning watcher? Did you come to it late? Is it something you've only kind of touched on professionally? You know, it's funny. Uh, with Scooby-Doo, I was a fan, but as a kid, I was a big Jabberjaw fan. So I, I watched Jabberjaw. I watched, you know, Wacky Racers, all that stuff. I did watch a bit of Scooby-Doo, but there was a lot of that like crossover that I was into. But uh, the original script, actually, for uh, Scoob had Jabberjaw in it. And I was like, oh. And I was, like, telling my mom. It was, like, hilarious, like, flashback when I was a little kid. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I liked it. I, I was Probably when I was really little, I was probably scared of it because it did have kind of a scary element to it. I look back, and it's, like, hilarious. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I watched it. I was a big, you know, Saturday morning kid. You know, I, I had, like, a little trumpet i'd blow in my sister's ear time for cartoons let's roll you know it was like 6 a.m she probably wanted to wrap that thing around my neck oh like an actual literal trumpet <laughs> yeah little tr yeah literal little trumpet <laughs> yeah so i was um definitely a big fan you know i hadn't i'd seen you know some of the live action ones that they had done but um it wasn't something that you know animation wasn't even an area that i was super involved in you know i was definitely more into live action and stuff and then started getting into more hybrids and stuff like that and did a chipmunks movie and once i started doing that i just went over and interviewed with them uh, met tony and allison and we just hit it off and um next thing you knew i was cutting a scooby-doo movie so uh I'm sure there are people that are way more versed in the Scooby-Doo world than me that could have cut it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun, and it's, uh, it's a really fun world. I love the kids. I love all the, the different characters. We were trying to kind of slam in a bunch of the, um, you know, the IP from the Hanna-Barbera world because there's so much of it. I mean, you could go anywhere. You could slide into so many different Easter eggs all over that movie. So it was kind of fun to work with Tony, who's such a huge fan and knows it so well. So uh, I learned a lot in the process, and it was fun to kind of tap back into my childhood a bit. You know? It's kind of interesting to hear you mention Jabberjaw, because not only is Jabberjaw a character that, other than in some select like Hanna-Barbera circles, you don't really hear about very often, but you're the second person I've interviewed from the film, and the second person who cited Jabberjaw as your favorite character. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. I recently talked to Bryn Matheny, the one of the character designers. Oh right, uh, creature designer. Yeah, she's she was a huge Jabberjaw fan, and, and she did like all the Jabberjaw development. Oh nice. Before he got cut. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because they actually also Jabberjaw went from a male to a female character. Oh really? She was it was a female character, and they were looking at who they could use for that because they she also had like a big singing voice in it, and so that we had some big musical numbers that we cut together, and it was like 
it was it was a lot of fun. It was definitely we were you know sliding more towards like Lizzo or that you know like making some pretty fun you know underwater dance numbers. It was pretty out there, <laughs> but uh, I think they just had too many characters, and I think it's tough when you already have the Mystery Gang plus Scooby and Shaggy plus Dick Dashley and Muttley, and now you're bringing in Blue Falcon and Dynamite. It's like I mean we had Grape Ape, we had Jabberjaw, we Captain Caveman's in it still, so it was tough. I think at some point. We just had to kind of just, you know, weed it out a little bit and hopefully in future um, adaptations or other off offshoots, they'll make some other movies with all that stuff because they're such fun characters. You know, that's always the challenge when you're I mean, when they set out, they announced that they wanted to create a Hanna-Barbera kind of cinematic universe and Scoob was you know, going to launch it. I think something a lot of people were wondering is like, how are you going to balance all of those characters, which is what you were just addressing? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a tricky one, and it's one that, you know, followed us all the way through the show. I mean, I came on in 2016, and then, you know, we worked on a, a version of the script there, and then I jumped off. We They were kind of, you know, redoing some stuff, and I jumped on to Lego Ninjago with Chris McKay and all those guys and worked on that for a bit and then helped out on Smallfoot, then came back to Scoob, and there was a, a whole new script there, so it was... It's always been a it's a tricky one to crack because do you want to go full origin story? Do you want to go Bill and Ted's with Scooby and Shaggy having to find their friends and really go that way? Do you want to you know because it's tough to start with an Avengers movie. You got to build to get to an yeah. Avengers, and in terms of all those characters to slide them in to make it work properly. So it was kind of an in between kind of uh, state that we kind of ended up at, which they, you know we still were, were able to do an origin story, pull that in a little bit, and then have some fun with some other characters that are from the universe, and you know have a good time with it. So it was kind of an all in one, and uh, it was interesting to see how the process kind of went. You know. So if you came in at 2016, was there roughly like nine months to a year of development prior to that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Yeah, and they had another kind of version of. The entire script was completely different, um, and then we did a change there, and then um, yeah, just kept you know adjusting and tweaking. We stayed in Act One for a while just to figure out how are we going to do this because the kids, when they're little, it's such a you really want to see that stuff. I think when I first came in, there was a a board artist named Shaheen that did some boards that was it was really interesting. It was like the first time that Scooby and Shaggy had ever met in these rough sketched boards, but his boards are so beautiful. And, um, it was like a little puppy Scooby and a little tiny kid Shaggy. And they were meeting for the very first time. And I remember just watching this sequence and I was like, I have never seen this before, like in this state, you know what I mean? It was just, it was very raw. It was very pure. The music was very minimalistic and like the way they kind of threw it together and we added some stuff to it and kept building off of it. And uh, yeah, it was it was interesting. It was really kind of fun. I was like, whoa, we got to somehow keep that in the movie. That is a great moment. However we do it, wherever we do it, to see the first time when these two iconic characters like meet is kind of cool. You know, so it was fun to kind of build off of that and then try to get, hey, how about we have the mystery gang kids and we somehow we meet them and and then get them together. And then from there we can push on to you know, they start solving their first mystery. And then, like, building off of that was kind of fun to see the process happen, you know. So, Just kind of back to the development. I'm curious because I know the role of an editor in animation is pretty significantly different from the role of an editor in live action. You start much earlier in the process, and, and you're, almost, you're almost there developing the story with the writer and the director, are you not? Yeah, definitely. So definitely. 
I'm curious, when you came in, were you the first editor to come in, or was there another editor prior to you? Or I was not. I believe, oh uh, gosh, Bob, I can't think of his last name, I'm so sorry. He was the first editor on, and then they kind of went down for a bit, and then they brought me in. And then from there, you know, so we kind of had boards to work with. So they said, hey, take these boards and let's start building from this stuff. And that's kind of how we kind of used the script that was there to make it as good as possible. And then it started to change. And then we started kind of grafting in new ideas and stuff like that. So it was it was a process that was built off of an older version as well as assets, because once you start, you're in there going. I think they were working with real effects, and then they started building assets, and now you're kind of you can get married into these assets that have been built because that stuff that's money, and um, you want to. Oh, so that actually moved beyond just like developing the script and the story. They were actually creating yeah. assets. Yeah, I think they okay. were starting in terms of like I think modeling and starting to kind of get some characters built, and you know certain ones you know are going to be in the movie, you know obviously, and you can see how the development of like. Which, you know, what kind of shaggy do we want to do? What kind of Scooby do we want to do? And I think Tony was really like, we're sticking to the original and let's, you know, make this exactly how I think it should be, which was, you know, really sticking to that model. So, yeah, I think that was kind of an interesting way to see how it all kind of developed, you know. Yeah, I know they were they were pushing it into a more kind of real world place for a little while just to kind of see what that would look like. And I know I've read interviews with Tony where he's talked about just how difficult it was keeping Scooby on model. Uh, so I'm, I'd be curious to find out what that was like to build that particular model. But <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's funny because he turns in certain directions and you're like, whoa, that's not Scooby. You know, so I, I think Tony is yeah. he is so like detail oriented in terms of the characters and what they can do and can't do. And like, yeah, it's, I learned a lot from him. You know, I don't come from animation, so that really wasn't my world. But um yeah, I learned a ton watching him. I learned a ton from Chris McKay. You know, he's he was also great. You know, with all the stuff he did with Lego Batman and the Lego movies and all that stuff. He's he was so it was kind of fun. Like in those four years that I was at WAG, like I started off in the boards and learning how the board process worked, which I had done in live action, but not at that extent. And then jumping from that stage straight, in, almost getting to layout, and then jumping into layout and animation in um, Lego Ninjago and learning that world in a heartbeat so fast because the schedule was insane, and then jumping back to Smallfoot to help those guys out while we waited for Scoob to get ramped up. So by the time I came back onto Scoob, I kind of felt like I had gone to animation's college, you know, for a year and a half or something. So it probably helped me out. You know, I learned a ton, and it was a lot of great people over there. So it was a good time. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna point out at some point that my first encounter with your work was Eli Roth's Cabin Fever way back, almost twenty years ago now. Um, and now I'm watching your work on Scoob, and I'm thinking that sounds like a very interesting and not entirely logical story progression. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. As far as, as far as career. Yeah, I've worked on some interesting ones. <laughs> and like you said, you didn't start working in, in animation. How did you get into animation? Was Alvin and the Chipmunks your first project? I did a TV show with Walt Becker. Like I worked with Walt on like Wild Hogs and Old Dogs and a bunch of stuff over yeah. at Disney. And then he was working on a TV show called Kirby Buckets um, over at the Disney Channel. And he's like, hey, do you want to jump on this for you know, a couple months? And I'm like, sure. So I jumped onto that. It had rudimentary like animation built into this little kid's world of how he saw things. And it was more like 2D flat moving around some stuff. 
And uh, it wasn't very advanced, but it was fun. And then he called me and said, hey, I have um, a Chipmunks movie that I'd like to do, and I, I want you to jump on it. And I was like, okay. So I, you know, when I first got on, I feel like Fox was probably like, whoa, this guy does not have any like animation experience. But man, the team that I had, my assists, everybody that was involved in that group was rock stars. Like I was surrounded by geniuses on that show. So we, with an insane schedule, we worked really hard on that show, and we did a, you know, I thought we did a really good job. We, we released early. We actually, I think we released, we were two weeks early, and they're like, great job, guys. We're going to open you guys up against Star Wars. <laughs> we're like, great, thanks. <laughs> so that got crushed, but whatever. Uh, but, uh, but I learned a ton on that about the, you know, three-dimensional blocking and, and like, just how the scene is kind of blocked out in terms of having a character that's in a 3D you know, environment and working with a live action person and how to do the plates and how far you could push the focus planes and stuff like that. It was just another learning process. And I just was lucky to work with some really talented people. And um, so that was kind of my first taste of once I saw the chipmunks coming in and seeing that, you know, 3D live kind of chipmunk was like, whoa, this is insane. And just where you could place them in the room and and I, I think those are actually probably tougher than animation because you're dealing with with real world live footage and characters. You got limitations and you got to really work within them or you'll get in trouble. You know, you you try to set up a plate with, you know, like we had this one shot of this giant tree that all the chipmunks were around and and knowing they could only go past this route, you know, because we're, we're working with Weta. And Weta's like, sorry, but, you know, beyond that route you're stepping out of focus and now Alvin is out. We have to keep him here. This person's got to be there. There was just so many little variables you really had to keep in mind. And is that a two shot or is that now a full shot of all three of them? Cause that costs this much money. I mean, you start getting into the politics and, and the budgets of that stuff and it gets tricky. Those are difficult dances to do, but I really learned a lot from it. And so by the time I, you know, landed with um, with Scoob, I felt at least well-versed in the area of animation, although I'd never really done a fully animated movie. But working with those board artists was like a dream. It's, they're such great artists. They're all so talented. And the collaboration in animation is, is just rad. I love all the people that I've worked with. So it was definitely a lot of fun. It just occurred to me that you've you've done live action, you've done live action blended with animation, and you've done full feature length animation. Yeah, you've kind of yeah. you've kind of run the gamut. I'm kind of run the gamut. I'm not a pro at any of them, but I feel pretty good. So uh, definitely, uh, it was a lot of fun. And I missed. I do love live action. I do feel sometimes you're a bit not handcuffed, but like the dailies come in, and those are the dailies you got to work with. You know, like wow, this is not working well together. I got to just somehow make the best of these pieces of dailies sometimes and with animation you're like whoa that doesn't work and then hey what if we did this and like boom you just open it up and the way that you can use flicks with the avid where i can like actually step into the um photoshop sessions that the um you know the psds and stuff that the board artists are working on and their cintiqs to be able to just double click on it and be into that session and now change layers and move things around just, you know, quickly to say, no, it should look like this. We want them moving left to right, and we don't want, you know, Jabber Jaws not in the movie anymore. Take that layer out. Take this out. And we can move so quick to tell that story really quickly to get it back over to previs or what it is, whatever it is we're doing in boards and stuff is 
it's pretty awesome. That part I, I really like. And I went to school like for art and, and sculpture and painting, but like I felt like I like oh I just left that behind. But now that I'm back into this, it's so much more collaborative and creative and artistic. And so I, I really love that process. You know, I learned a lot from the board artists and everybody. So. So how much flexibility do you actually have once scenes start coming back? Like from previs and stuff? Like once we... Yeah, like I know in, in live action, like you said, what you have is what you have unless you're on some big studio movie where you've got scheduled reshoots or additional photography where you can go, okay, we need to tweak this, we have a scene we're missing or whatever. But in animation, like once it starts being created, once the scenes start coming in, mm. I know on television shows there's a certain number of retakes they have on each on each episode that they can send back to a studio. Mm-hmm. But particularly with like a, a large CGI feature film, how far can you go with the editing process before it's like we're done, we can't do any more to this, we're we're locked in. Um, yeah, I think you try to do as much kind of working with it in you know layout and stuff. Once the animation comes in, you know the handles are pretty small on those shots. You know, even though you're begging for like eight to sixteen frame handles, so you can like open up shots and stuff. Once you know, you're also dealing with, you know, actually bringing in the live actors you know, to do the dialogue and sometimes dialogue changes and, you know, it opens things up or you want to do a joke and try something here. So you can get a little bit jammed in areas, but I feel like there's way more wiggle room leading up to final animation than you have in live action, in my opinion. I mean, sure, we push the limits in areas, and especially when you're dealing with lip sync, you can get into trouble pretty fast. I think we were lucky on Ninjago because all the ninjas have their faces covered, so we would just have their <laughs> their faces shake or like master, you know, like his 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 like little like beard would shake, and we could fake lines and do jokes all the way up almost to the final mix. But with Scooby Doo, that lip sync was so crucial and tricky to nail down that you can get jammed into some of that stuff. So. Um, I'd probably say there's there's room to do some stuff, but you better really get busy in boards and do as much work as you can once you hit previs and, and you know the layout process to to really open up some cuts. You almost want to like pad things out a little bit in case um, some more jokes come in, or you want to you know end on a reaction shot and you want to kind of. So I always kind of cut a little bit fat in the beginning just so I have room to trim back if I need to as opposed to trying to buy back frames once it's too late, you know, so. Do you schedule certain sequences knowing that, okay, well, this is something big and we might want to change it, so when it comes in, they've got time to change it? I think so. I think even, like, um, yeah, when you first get it going, which sequences are going to go into previs first? It's like you kind of try to get the ones that feel like, obviously, you want the locations and the assets, whichever ones are built first and that they're ready with to move forward on, but... There's the it's the big ones that usually kind of save to the end. I think the some of the stuff in the end of Act Three and Scoob was just so large. All the stuff in in Greece and stuff and all the battle sequences and stuff and dealing with Cerberus that was all saved to the end. Basically because we were also trying to get the writing correct and really make all that kind of come together and tie up in a bow. So for me, in like in every movie. This opening and the ending are always like, let's deal with those last. Let's get this middle together. Just you just know it's going to change and things are going to get tweaked on an opening and tweaked at an ending. So for me, like I feel like that's probably the areas that I always try to kind of like push off to the end if possible. You know, so I guess on a on a show like Scoob, which took like five years to get to the screen, I mean, you're you're probably pretty sure what you're going into once 
<laughs> yeah. Once you actually start sending those things away to get animated. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Now, again, building off of that, the movie took five years to come to the screen. You came on. You were the second editor. I know that there was a pivot uh, somewhere like halfway through where they brought Dax Shepard in, mm-hmm. and there were some story changes that were going on. How many iterations of of the film, or the story, rather, uh, were you a part of or, or did you see? I'd probably say I was involved in, like, four to five pretty serious, like, throw it out the wall, this is where it sits, what do you guys think? You know, I'm like, really, like, we put all three acts up there, watched it. I think the one before Dax showed up, we had one there, we had one with Dax, we had one pri- right after Dax, then we had probably one and a half more after that where we really had some real big structural changes that we tried to do and uh it was it's tough because you're trying to put together the best movie you possibly can for a fan base that is you know they really care about this ip and they love it and you want to do it justice and i think tony is the first guy to defend that to the death because he he, he is a fan, you know what I mean? And he wants to make sure, because he's like, I'll rip this thing apart if it isn't right. And so I think he was trying to really do it service and really do it justice as much as possible. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a tough one, you know, for sure with something like that. You were talking about how they really cared about the IP, and I was just kind of thinking, like, a lot of movies are really fighting against their release date. And there are choices that can't be made because they're just like, we don't have time for this. But this movie had a really long gestation period, and they, you know, for whatever the reasons are, they were making choices that really prolonged the production of this. And and then, of course, they're faced with COVID when they try to release it. But it is interesting that you guys kind of had the space to make those changes, those decisions, those pivots. Mm-hmm. Is that is that a sense that you got kind of in the room? Um, Yeah, I think they were always kind of just... I think it's tough. I think whenever you're trying to crack open a universe to something, you know, you have to be very delicate with it. And I feel like Scooby-Doo is really like the main like portal into this larger Hanna-Barbera world. And they just wanted to make sure that they were doing it right. And it was well received because anytime you're restarting, you know, something like that, like, hey, here's a new Scooby-Doo movie. And you're also trying to lace in some other pieces of, you know, the Hanna-Barbera world you got to be really careful with that. And I think that's probably why they were as delicate as they were with getting it, how they felt it was the right way to release it. You know what I mean? I think that's tiny. You you know, you're bringing in writers and other writers on top of it. And you're trying to like kind of see through all of that. And what is, what is the reason we're making this movie, you know? And, and uh, so I think it's, it's a tough one. I think they were trying to be as careful as they possibly could with it to make sure they did the right thing. You know, it's a, it's a tough one. People, (laughs) people love Scooby-Doo and don't mess with it. or They're going to kill you. So it's tough. And I think some areas, you know, people aren't happy with this or they're not happy with that, or they felt that we went the wrong direction here, or we should have stayed origin or we should, there's so many different ways you could have played it. I don't know if you're ever really going to make everybody satisfied with something like that, that you're tapping into someone's childhood, you know, and it's like, you don't want to step on that. Like, I've seen movies that I saw when I was a kid, and they've been remakes, and now I'm like, so mad, and it's like, they didn't mean to make me mad, (laughs) they're just trying to make a movie, you know what I mean? So I think that's a tough one, because you're really, you know, like, my generation is like, we grew up on that, and then there's other subsequent generations that have grown up on this classic, you know, cartoon character and friends, and so... 
everybody interprets that differently and i think it's uh it's a delicate one people can get really upset if it's not done right and i mean so far i think everybody was really happy we laced in a lot of easter eggs guys like mike karinsky the uh, production designer is awesome like we had some really really talented people that cared about it that really tried to bring things so we'd have meetings like what if we did this and like yeah and what if we put lace this in we'll put the name signage like those guys went over and over every set to see where they could drop some easter eggs in places and there's an insane amount of easter eggs it's it's pretty (laughs) insane i was like oh my god you guys are crazy you know but it was rad i mean it's like i like it because some each if you really watch stuff and look at signage and look at placement of different things it just shows they cared like they took the time to care like they did their research um tony knows that world so well karinsky climbed all over that world and um i was just happy to kind of like help push it along and keep it all in order you know with all the other members of the team and stuff so it was it was it's it's tough but I, i feel i feel proud of how hard everybody worked to try to get it out there especially considering what we had to deal with at the end. It is kind of tempting fate with these properties like Star Trek, Star Wars, Scooby-Doo. You know, they've been around for 40, 50 years. Yeah. Generational. Like, it's it's not just one group, right? Like, there's the group like us that grew up with it. Totally. There's the other group who maybe they were pup named Scooby-Doo kids or maybe they were, you know, Mystery Incorporated yeah. kids or whatever. Right. So, yeah, you're not going to make everybody happy. Totally. <laughs> it's a fool's errand. <laughs> That's true. Definitely. And you're also trying to make a movie that kind of can hit all different, you know, generations as well. Because, like, I would bring my eight-year-old nephew in to watch stuff. And I'm like, what did you think of that? And, and I'm like, is that too scary for you? Like, The Haunted House, it was we had some pretty scary music in, and it was it was borderline a little too scary. And it's funny to see somebody like that at that age to be like, no, that was fine. Like, these kids have watched, like, pretty crazy <laughs> stuff. And so it kind of makes you kind of rethink, but you also want to be careful of the kids that maybe haven't seen that kind of stuff. And so you got to, you know, watch out for that and parents and, you know, it's a, it's a tough one. It's definitely a, a balance for sure. Now, something I noticed the first time I watched this movie, it does feel really trim. There isn't a lot of fat on it. And I was curious, how long were like your early story reels? Um, trying to think. They, uh, we definitely... I think when we were in boards, it was a much longer film, you know, and I think that we really allowed it to kind of grow and just to see how it was feeling. So when we turned stuff over to previs, we almost did a lot of work, in my opinion, in the layout stage to really like not only, you know, check cameras and where we're doing in terms of scouting locations and stuff, but also to just kind of okay, where do we want to sit on this? Do we want to open this up more? We really kind of looked at like where are the places that you know, this movie can breathe for a second. And I think as we came down to the end, I know we did like kind of a trim pass at the end and it was kind of a doubling up. And I kind of feel like, in my opinion, in some areas, I just thought we got a little bit tight on some of the cuts. It's tough because you just don't have that much time to really open those back up. Once you've, once you've made those trims at the end, you got to live with them. And, uh, you know, there are discussions about that. And I think some people wanted things tighter some people wanted it a little i like things to breathe a little bit more you know but you win some you lose some and uh, hopefully you don't mess up the pacing too much everybody we never had a um, screening where people were like oh it's way too long you know like it was always like 
Pacing feels good. Might be a little tight in this area. Might be a little tight in that area. You know, I kind of grew up in uh, my house. My dad was a film editor for years. And uh, <laughs> he's cut, you know, I mean, crazy comedy stuff. I mean, I watching him do, you know, as a kid, I only got to see from, like, probably Blues Brothers on. But, like, Animal House. But all his stuff with Landis from Kentucky Fried Movie through Trading Places, you know, Coming to America, all that stuff. His comedy timing was always something that I tried to emulate and live up to. And um, there was always a reason for the cut, you know, and I always believed in that. And he pounded it in my head, whether I knew it or not, by growing up in his cutting rooms as a kid. And so I always always try to think like how my dad would do something in a situation. And, you know, sometimes you, you got to speak up and say stuff and sometimes maybe your your feelings about a cut are wrong and you know it's like it's a tough it's a it's a subjective format you know and some people think oh that's that feels great other people like oh it's too long and you know editing is it's a it's a tricky one i think that there's areas that we could have probably opened it up a little bit more and let it breathe a bit but um you know it's a rocket that's for sure Yeah, if there's one criticism I have of the film, I I could easily have had another ten or fifteen minutes in there just to let some character stuff kind of like yeah breathe, like you say. Yeah, was there a not pressure, but was there a desire from Warner Brothers to keep it tight to like ninety minutes? Um, I mean, they never threw a number at us. I mean, it's always tough when you're dealing with the animation because there is a budget that you're trying to work within, and each shot you make is costing you money. It's like it's not something that you shot out on, at a a set or um, at a location where the money's spent there and now let's put it together you have it you're actually having to create that space out there that you're trying to build that world so i know that you know money always is a factor in animation but i know that they're really pushing for good storytelling as well i don't think they really ever there's never really a number they gave us i think they just you know showing it to an audience they just checked pacing with how audiences felt and how we all felt about it and you know, I think everybody was pretty much on the same page. I mean, there's always going to be one or two of us that are like saying, hey, what about this? And but, um, you know, as an overall, I think everybody on the stage was was feeling pretty good. It, it's tough because, you know, once you marry in music and stuff and you kind of want some of the some of the cues will hit at a certain point, And when you get that final music, I think Junkie did a great job. But sometimes when music hits, it'll tighten that cut up for you. You know, where that maybe that music used to hit a little bit earlier in the temp score. So sometimes when that happens, like in live action, you can maybe like open it up a little bit more, like let's do this. But once you've got those frames that are like fully rendered out on the stage, you're tied to it. You got to deal with it. So I think we had to do a little bit of restructuring and having some stings kind of like tighten up at the back end and stuff. And but all in all, I think everybody just worked their butt off to make it as good as, as we could, you know, considering. You just you kind of jog something in my memory where I remember reading an article where they were talking about there's this idea that if you can imagine it, you can bring it to the screen in animation, right? Like it's effects that weren't possible in live action. You could make an animated film. But then when they switched to digital and, and the CG, that changed. That It became more like live action again because you were literally building sets. You were just building sets virtually. Mm-hmm. And you still had to pay people to build those. And like it was, it was just a different, more intensive is not the word that I want to use. I'm not sure what the word I want to use is, but the process is just a lot more uh, difficult, I guess. Mm-hmm. That has nothing to do with editing. <laughs> <laughs> so there was another editor credited for the film that was... Uh, yeah, Vonara Tang. Yeah. 
Was that somebody that came after you, or was that somebody that you were working with? She was someone that originally I was working with a guy named Dave Mandel when I first came on, and then Dave jumped over into development, and then I jumped off to do Lego Ninjago. And I think right. Honor and I met the same day on Lego Ninjago to come in to help out. She had worked with Chris McKay on Lego Batman, so they brought her in to Ninjago to help out just to, with the cut and to move that because that movie was moving pretty fast. And so we met. We became great friends. She has just an insane work ethic and uh, is just a great editor. And, uh, yeah, we just hit it off. So when I went down to Sydney on Ninjago, she remained up in L.A. And then when I came back, I jumped over onto Smallfoot. And they kept her, I think, to just keep her around at WAG working on stuff. And then she was going to go on to another show. And I said, hey. Dave is uh, working in development. If you want to jump onto the show with me, I'd love to have you. I'll share it with you because, you know, know, you're a great editor. So she jumped on with me, and, uh, yeah, we cut it together. So she's great, fantastic editor. She understands the animation world so well. Um, So it was great to have somebody like that, you know, team up with me, you know. In the action sequences, there's a lot of, like, handheld kind of look and uh, camera work. And I know in live action, when you're going handheld, it affects your, your decisions as far as like your shot selections and your editing and stuff because it's how many cameras you have, it's how many angles you're going to have. Like it, yeah. That's what you're working with. In animation, when you're going to those sort of handheld sequences, does that change your approach editorially at all? Or is it just you've got your 3D space and you've got your 3D camera and they're just moving it around? Yeah, I mean, I think... It was definitely a decision that Tony wanted to make. I think he really felt like, look, we're going to shoot this like as if we were going to shoot live action. Because we're like, oh, what if we put a camera here and it flew by here and did this and that? And he's like, no, I want it to be in a place where that is where a camera would be. This is what would happen. And so he really kind of wanted to ground the film and make it feel that way. When we did some of the handheld stuff, yeah, I think he just wanted it to feel kind of, you know, raw and really like as if you were in like the roller coaster stuff is just like pretty crazy. And some of the camera moves, I know they did a lot of like, you know, not like like the office, like with move ins on people. But that camera was definitely moving a bit. I think they definitely made a choice that they were going to do this. The first pass through, I think, was a little bit too much. So they backed off of it. But um, that was definitely a design that they wanted to do for sure. And wanted, and they were like, we're going to stick with this and this is what we're going to do. But the camera was definitely a big deal in terms of where we're putting it and how we're going to do this. Um, they definitely had a plan for that. So it, as far as editing goes, it does affect us, but it wasn't something that was I felt problematic at all. I think a lot of that stuff is added at the end with the cameras. We're just kind of once we go from storyboards into pre-vids and they start setting cameras, once we get into animation, I think it was really more like that was between Michael and with uh, Tony just to decide where they wanted to you know, put those cameras and move them and make them feel a little bit more like handheld and or not so much locked off, but like part of the scene as opposed to like these fake cameras that you see sometimes like. Uh, how could you ever put a camera there? Like, I think they wanted it to really feel believable, you know, in, a, in as much as possible in an animated film. Were there any sequences that either you had cut personally or that you knew got cut from previous iterations that you were really sorry to see go? Hmm. Um, I mean, obviously Jabberjaw, I suppose. Yeah, Jabberjaw was fine. <laughs> it was just because it was a big, ridiculous underwater dance number. It was ridiculous. But I, there was actually, there was a couple 
There was the the original way that Shaggy and Scooby got on the on the Falcon jet was very. They were serious fanboys of Blue Falcon, and they still are in the movie. But in this case, they knew every single like inch of that that ship. So when Dee Dee Skies first is like, and over here is like Shaggy just like cut her off and like ran over to it and said, "This is this," and then he just went on this tirade around the ship. And uh, it was just really funny and just super energetic. I, I missed that one. I just thought it was great. I think they still had some really funny stuff. I mean, the Ikea joke and that stuff is really funny. It was kind of from that point on, uh, it got pretty crazy. And we had a couple Easter eggs in there where they open up like a sauna. And there's like Quick Draw McGraw like in the sauna, like covering up with like a towel. You know, so we were starting to lace <laughs> in some of the IP and like some Easter eggs, which was funny. And uh, we did back off of that a little bit. But I missed that sequence. I thought it was pretty funny. One of the funnier ones, you know. And Blue Falcon changed over a period of time. You know, he was definitely a little bit more boisterous and arrogant and stuff. And uh, so it's tough because you see characters, like, they change. And he and then there's other areas that become better because of the character development. You know what I mean? So it's, it's always a give and take with that stuff as characters develop and sequences change you know hopefully all leading to the right place you know but that was one i, I always kind of liked that version it was just crazy <laughs> i've always been interested since i saw it uh the first time it kind of naturally starts with scooby and shaggy meeting and that all makes sense but as the as the film progresses and you get into the the dick dastardly kind of section of the film you're kind of there's this whole other movie going on that you're not really a part of and it's just sort of catching up with the movie that you're currently watching and i wondered if there was ever any temptation or if, or if there was ever an actual plan to have a dick dastardly kind of prologue to the film where you get to see him go and steal one of those like first skulls and then transition into the scooby shaggy origin or if that was not something that anybody was thinking. It's, it was definitely something that we had. It was There was a movable piece in there that we used. And at one point, it definitely was a cold open where you're like, whoa, who is – you didn't know who this person was, and you saw what he was doing. Yeah, it was – it was an interesting way to start it. I actually really liked it. It just and then we kind of moved it into the middle or not the middle, but the before you first met Dastardly. It was just tough because of um, if he's taking the skulls and then you're meeting Scooby and Shaggy and they're little and then the gang is little and then you go like a progression of like maybe seven to ten years by the time you meet them in the diner. What has he been doing this whole time? And it was just like there was a time issue in there that we were dealing with because we also wanted to do an origin. But if you started him stealing that first skull, you're like, man, what's this guy been doing for 10 years? He's only got one skull. So it was, it was, <laughs> it was definitely kind of tough. But, uh, yeah, it was it was for sure drawn. It was pre -vised. I mean, that thing was ready to roll. It was just where was it going to go? And then in the end, it, we kind of stripped it out and then placed it into what Velma was looking at on the computer. So it's tough. You're trying to pack so much into a movie like that. It ended up getting stripped away a bit. But uh, it was fun. It was like Machu Picchu. And it was these scientists going into this place. And they find this skull and how it got there. And then he comes in and extracts it out. And it's, it, was a, it was a lot of fun to put together. It's too bad it wasn't able to make it into the movie. We were only able to use a little piece of it. But... Um, it was definitely a fun process to put together, for sure. But so, to answer your question, yes. <laughs> well, knowing that exists, I'm going to let that live on in my head, Ken. <laughs> I'll send you the boards. <laughs> oh, nice. Yes. I'm all for this. 
Now, seeing some of the concept art that amazing, amazing artists that worked on this movie have been releasing on like Instagram and Twitter, there's a lot of images featuring a lot of the Hanna-Barbera characters. We know that there were originally more characters and then it got trimmed back. But I know like the Wacky Racers were in some of the images. Adamant, I know, was under development at some point. How big did this movie actually get? Like at its absolute biggest... How crazy was it? It was pretty crazy. We definitely did. We had Penelope Pitstop. We had, you know, Adam Ant. There was a really crazy sequence with Adam Ant coming out. And he was actually, he was a lot of fun, but it was just one of those characters. Grape Ape was there. I mean, there's a whole story between Shaggy and Grape Ape. And Grape Ape is just when he's a little chimp size before he eats a grape, you know, and then he blows up and gets gigantic. But there was that whole side story running through it. There was, um,. Yeah, definitely. Uh, before Dee Dee Skies, there was a Penelope Pitstop character, and they did kind of a wacky racers kind of sequence with her driving. I think she was driving the mystery van, or she was in the race. I can't remember. And they're being chased through like Topanga Canyon or something, and it was it was an insane sequence that I think Shaheen also boarded. We had a couple guys who were incredible, like you know nasus and uh, i mean just these guys that have been there forever and rafael zentiel who was the head of story did a fantastic job uh noel Raff, there's just a whole bunch of people and uh john duesenberry i'm just trying to think of all of them there's so many but uh, yeah <laughs> so yeah, many. Yeah, i'm sure they're all releasing their <laughs> stuff because i've seen some of their stuff out there and i'm like oh i remember that it's just like crazy but uh yeah there was a it was pretty big and you know i think when some of those characters were in then other ones kind of weren't, but when they were all in, it was quite a feast of uh, you know Hanna Barbera characters. Uh, definitely, probably too much. It was a lot to bite off. I thought you know it was like we got to thin the herd here somewhere because you just you really lose sight of Scooby and Shaggy and all of that you know. And it's like people came to watch a Scooby Doo movie you know. Um, yeah. As much as those are really fun characters, it's one of those things where first you got to establish these guys and then build the world off of them. And then hopefully there's an appetite for those other characters in the future for them. You know? I know I've heard some criticisms where people have argued that there's too much going on in the movie as it is. And I just think to like what I knew and now what I now know <laughs> of how it could have yeah, been it, and how scaled back it actually yeah, is. Yeah, no, definitely. We definitely took it into consideration. I mean, it's a tough one because you could honestly have done just an origin story, you know, and just met Scooby and Shaggy, met the mystery gang. You know, and really got to know them as little kids and, and finished it up at They Get the Mystery Van. Next movie. You know, I mean, you could do that, too. It's, there's so many ways you could do it. So I think, you know, we were trying to really, like, placate a lot of different people and a lot of different um, ideas to kind of make it work. And I'm, I'm happy with what we came up with. You know, it could, you know, things could always be different. Things could be better. You can – that's editing. You know what I mean? At some point, you got to – you got to hit print and ship it, and that's that's the movie you got. Or you could work on it for another five years. So I'm actually glad we got something out there. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's tricky. I've heard that at some stage of development, Warner Brothers at least, I'm not, I'm not sure at kind of what level it was at, was considering minimizing the roles of the gang. And there was kind of some push and pull as to, well, we don't really know what to do with them. And rather than figure out what to do with them, like, can we just cut them out? I was wondering if, if you were around for any of that, if, if you had any insight into that kind of tug of war. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it wasn't so much that they wanted to, like, get rid of them. It was just like, what is 
what will be their purpose in this story? And are we just showing them to show them? And then all of a sudden we have a, a long stretch without them. And then they show up at the end. And it's like, is that what we really want to do with these great characters? And then we really started, you know, it was really the idea of like separating them was a big part of it. It was like, if we get Scooby and Shaggy over here and the mystery gang over here. It's going to show, you know, how much they care about each other and how much they want them to be a part of the team because people love that that mystery gang when they're all together. So I think by having that longing for it by the end, you're able to have a space where you can keep them separate and have them doing different things and then meet up in the end and then everybody's kind of happy. But we wanted to kind of keep going back to them because they were pursuing their friends trying to find out what happened to them. And you could switch it. There were thoughts of switching that, which I thought was kind of fun, you know, because it's kind of more of like a Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. It's like these two guys that are like kind of clueless have to now find their friends in this version. Like instead of the other way around where like the brains are trying to find Scooby and Shaggy, these two guys are trying to find the brains. And so that was thought about. We had a couple of different ways to do it. and But there was always a pursuit of the other so that you could kind of intercut and keep them both alive throughout the movie. So by the time you did come to the end, um, you know, you had them all together again. So, uh, yeah, it was definitely thought of. I think it was just it was another one of those things like we have Blue Falcon, we have Dynamite, we have Dee Dee Skies, we have Shaggy, Scooby, we have Caveman. And now we got the other three mystery gang members. Like we're talking, we're already at like ten or eleven people in two seconds. And the villains. Yeah, and then you got Dazzle and Mutley and all the rotten. So it's like it's it's a lot. So I think that was what do we do? Do we you know? I think it was more like, do we take out the mystery gang and then bring them back? Like it was really more of like you know, wow, we have a lot of characters. How are we going to deal with this? As opposed to, like, we got to get rid of the mystery game. They're boring. You know, that kind of thing. I think they really, everybody wanted them in there. It's just how do we do it so it feels like they're a part of this movie. So, But I think at the end it was like, I really liked cutting their stuff together. I thought it was fun. I think that, that each of the um, the cast members did a great job with those characters. So uh, I thought Zach was funny. I thought, I thought all of them were really great, you know. So those sequences were really funny and just seeing – the scene with Fred and Dastardly as the female cop, like how that developed, like that stuff was funny. Like we're like, oh, we got to throw Dreamweaver in on this one. Or we're like, you know, we had all these ideas and it was funny to see how that kind of lingered where Fred was still kind of obsessed with her all the way through the end of the movie. We thought that was kind of funny. So, yeah, it brought a little maturity to the joke telling, I think, which was kind of fun with those guys. You know, Amanda was great. And, you know, I mean, it was just like, they all had their pieces that were kind of fun to work with. So I saw this great thing online. It must have been a, a Mystery Incorporated fan. I'm not sure how familiar you are with Mystery Incorporated. I saw, I saw a fair share, but not a ton, but yeah. Okay, so you know Fred loves traps. Definitely. And somebody online was pointing out that the police officer that pulls them over is essentially a trap because it's dastardly in disguise, mm. and Fred is falling for a trap. <laughs> Because he loves traps, and he's attracted to traps. Right. And I was like, ah, many levels. Yeah. <laughs> we actually did have a scene, I think one of the board artists probably posted it too, which was Fred setting the trap for Dastardly. And he was explaining it. It was really funny. And the girls were just like so over it. It was pretty funny to watch. You know? <laughs> so it went from him setting the trap to Dastardly setting the trap for them. It was kind of a different play on it, but it was fun to do. That's a that's a good segue to talk briefly about the cast. I'm curious, there's a lot of really good 
vocal performances for this movie, and I wondered if any of those performances, because they are recorded much earlier in the in the production process before the animation, uh, did any of their performances affect the editing or cutting of the film in any way? Uh, not really. I mean, it's tough. Sometimes you can get some serious improv that comes in. I mean, we had that with um, on Ninjago with Kamal and with Zach Woods and and. Uh, uh, Justin Thoreau, they just like went off on this thing and made a scene like hilarious. Like they just went to town. I think Zach brought some stuff to the Fred character where he would go off on some tangents that were really funny. Then we would try to kind of piece that together with other stuff that we could get from Amanda or from Gina to make that stuff work. And Dastardly, I think he definitely brought some stuff to it also. So I think there was there's a couple of characters that kind of pushed it out there and tried some stuff. And that, for me, I w- always hope that that does affect the edit. You know what I mean? Because if it's, if they're going a place that's like for me that I didn't think of or the the writers didn't think of, and it's funny and it's working, in my opinion, it's going in. Let's try this. Let's see if we can make it work. And maybe we need to bring back one of the other characters that are, you know, riffing with them in that moment, and we need to get the return off of their jokes that they're doing to really complete the joke. You know what I mean? So, for me. Uh, yeah, it, it it can definitely affect the edit, and hopefully in a good way, make it funny, so or make more sense. Sometimes they get they get a script and they're like, why would I be saying this? This doesn't make any sense. And you sit there and you're like, good point. What do you think it? Should be? You know what I mean? So and like you know, not that the writing isn't making sense, but sometimes you could take it and like people will all of a sudden take an idea and then run with it, and it becomes even that much more of an idea. For me, I think you know there are no bad notes in. In my in the way I feel the film industry goes or in the editing room, that's kind of one of the things my dad taught me. Like every note is for a reason, whether it's a good note or a bad note, it might take you to a place you never would have gotten to. So I like that. Somebody says some note. I never say, like, that's a stupid note. I'm not doing that. I'm like, cool, let's try it. See what happens. And then next thing you know, you're like, oh, we never would have done this. And so I'm I'm open to any notes. So you have worked quite extensively in in both comedy and horror. A lot of people have compared the two, saying that, you know, comic timing and and the timing of scares and whatnot, a lot of that obviously has to do with editing and and the way that it's shot. I wonder if if that's your attraction to it, and which of the two do you prefer, if any? Um, I mean, I like them both. I like sad. I like them all. Like, for me, if I'm sitting in a theater and I'm... Because I love to, like, if we're previewing and stuff, I love to sit down in the theater, run the dial, and sit with people and just kind of get a feel of what they're... And when you see a person next to you, like, laughing hysterically at a joke that you guys set up or and it works, it's a great feeling. If you see them jump out of their seat, scared, that's awesome. You see people crying. I mean, anytime you can get somebody to emote in a theater, it's pretty cool. You're doing, yeah, your you're doing a job, you know, and sometimes you're like, oh, God, that did not work. Like that person should be laughing there or that person should be crying there or that person, you know, should be scared. So I think, yeah, I'll take any of them. If any of them are working, I feel like I'm doing my job. And uh, yeah, it's it's a fun process. That's the best part out, out of it all is like being able to sit in the theater and know that something is working correctly. You're having a ton of people laughing hysterically at something or uh, you know, sad or, or scared out of their minds. I, I love that stuff. That's kind of why I do it. Is there an example? It's okay if you don't have one, but is there an example on Scoop where in the process, something that didn't seem to be working, like a slight tweak, just 
made it click and you're like, oh, this is magic now? Uh, I'll tell you, when Scooby and Shaggy met for the first time, in, in our first preview where we actually showed because a lot of it was boards and then we'd have some animation and like we were really kind of some of those early screenings were pretty tough on an audience to watch you know and uh they sat through it and gave you know great notes but once we really had some of that final animation for scooby and shaggy meeting for the first time like i was sitting next to some people and uh you know they were like they like they were like had their like took their like it was really crazy. They were very emotional. I was like, whoa, that was weird. All of a sudden, I get like kind of like goosebumps a little bit. And then when uh, they get kind of bullied and knocked to the ground in the outside the haunted house, and Fred comes over and he says, "Are you okay?" You know, and reaches down to pick him up. And then you see the uh, Velma and Daphne. People are like, <gasps> like they were like had little gasps and like they were like oh my gosh oh my gosh it's that like it was it was trip i was like whoa like it was it was really cool like it was like wow this is working people like seeing them as little kids we weren't sure i mean you know they're all cute and stuff but that little moment you know and the music worked right and it just felt had this nice feeling i was like okay that's cool that stuff's working we feel good about them as little kids is gonna work so you know that was that was one of those things like i didn't expect it and when it came out, it was like, oh, okay, cool. People like that stuff, you know. What would you say is your your takeaway off of Scoob? You know, it was a it was a long process, but uh, a really interesting one. I learned an, a ton from all the people that I spent time with over at WAG. They were all, you know, so good to me, and you know, I just had a great time. Yeah, I feel like you know we set. I mean, it was a movie that kind of was hadn't found itself and it was nice to finally kind of grapple it and put it together and get it out there and um the camaraderie of the crew and how hard everybody worked to get that thing out was pretty unbelievable you know i mean at one point we had to strip down everybody at the stage i was only up there for a certain amount of time and then it was like warner brothers like everybody's got to go home and everybody was working remotely and so the people that stayed that were able to kind of get that stuff done, finish those notes on the stage, get the M&E done, get everything done, finish the DI, because a lot of us, you know, we had to kind of stay away for a bit. It was it was tough. And like I have mad respect for everybody that helped finish that movie and get it done. It was, uh, yeah, I have some of my best friends that worked on that show. And so I love those guys. They're, they're so great, so talented. I'm happy to see everybody kind of going off to do other things or staying there and sliding off on other ones. So, uh, yeah, it was just, you know, it was like a family over there for me. So it was like a four-year, like, fam- I'm not working there right now. I kind of slid off, but uh, I had a great time with all of them. Cool. Mm. If there's a sequel and they call you, right, do you go back? Uh, I, you know, yeah, I'd go back. They're great. <laughs> A couple more questions that I ask everybody who I talk to, just for Scooby curiosity. Do you have a favorite iteration of the television show? Or I suppose the movies can also count. Mm-hmm. I'd probably go back to Scooby-Doo, Where Are You, for me. You know, I think that's that's probably, you know, that taps into my childhood and stuff. So I think that's probably the one. I mean, I, I liked what the live-action ones were doing. And it was, uh, you know, that stuff is pretty, in a way, kind of groundbreaking trying to pull in this CG dog into this world. You know what I mean? It's, it's not easy to do, so I have mad respect for those. But, yeah, my love is when I was a little kid watching the original stuff and, and getting into it, all that stuff. That's that's kind of my favorite. I'm not sure which one. I'm trying to think which one is my favorite. Mm. 
Yeah, I don't know. There's so many. So many characters, it's crazy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Do you have a favorite member of the gang? Um, I mean, I Scooby's an easy one to go to for me. And uh, I always liked Velma, I'll be honest with you. I was a big Velma fan for some reason. I just liked her brains and like how she did things was always kind of fun. But, uh, you know, for me, the comedy is always Scooby and Shaggy getting in trouble and doing stuff. So I think it's probably those two as a pair, to be honest, you know, because they were the comedy for me. Yeah, they're, they're kind of inseparable they really, in more ways than they one. They really yeah. are, you know. <laughs> So this franchise is, uh, it's invincible, it's been going on for 50 years, uh, so many iterations, so many live action animated, like, as we discussed before, this is something that people are entrenched with, these characters. Having worked behind the scenes with other people involved in the franchise, do you have any insight as to why these characters, why this, this IP has survived for as long as it has? I think it's because it's just a couple of kids, it reminds me of some of my friends hanging out with. And then you also lace in like this mystery and you want to know what happened and how how are these kids going to figure it out. Um, you want to see who the villain is. You're always trying to say, like, oh, it's this guy. Oh, it's that guy. You're always trying to put it together, for me at least. Um, and so I think that's probably what resonates with a lot of people because it does feel like it could be you and just your friends figuring some stuff out you know every not every friend group but i know my friend group had a scooby and shaggy in it you know these two that were just like <laughs> dumb and dumber but like hilarious and so i think you can tap into that from your friend groups and stuff like that and like they kind of each of those characters can be any of your friends and so it just kind of taps into who you are as a little kid growing up and stuff. And then in teen years, things that they're going through, you're going through. But through all of that, these guys are also trying to solve a mystery, which is kind of fun and exciting. So I think that's why it's it just captivates people and they just love it. Different villains and, and that stuff, you know, which is, which is fun. Okay, great. That's all I have for questions. Uh, if anybody wants to follow you online, check out kind of what you're doing. Keep tabs on you. <laughs> Uh, where could they find it? Um, yeah, it's a good one. Uh, I don't really have like a website or anything. I just edit. <laughs> so, yeah, that's pretty much it. And the rest is just whatever movies I'm working on. You can usually see on IMDb, I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Ryan, for sharing these insights. This is uh, It's been really interesting talking to the people working on Scoob. And, I mean, it's, it was such a long, protracted production. You know their stories. You know there's all kinds of stuff that was going on that we're not seeing in 93 minutes on the exactly. screen. So. Uh, this has been a really good deep dive into the process. Thank you cool. so much for coming. Oh, on thanks show. for having me. I really appreciate it. I had a great time. Go see Scoop. <laughs> we all worked hard on it. Cool. Comes out on DVD and Blu-ray, I think July 21st. Sweet. Nice. And currently on HBO Max. I think they did a lot of um, extras in it, too. There's a, So any of those scenes that you're talking about, I, I, I recall going through a list of those scenes that got left on the floor. I think there's going to be a lot of little... Uh, exciting pieces in there that people might like, you know. And you'll get to see. Some, oh, I hope so. I think some of them are boarded out too, so you get to see some of these board artists and and their work because they do an amazing job. These people are really talented, and I don't know what the animation world would do without them. They're incredible. And it's not just like, hey, here's a scene, give it back to us exactly as we asked. You let them open up their their imagination, and they bring you the scene that they think it should be. At least the good ones really do, and they push it. And I just I love that process. I love you don't want to ever like have a, a person with artistic ability like that sitting with their hands under their feet because they're told to and just do this script like 
bring bring me what you got. I want to see your comedy. I want to see your artistic ability and put it all together. And and when people do that, uh, it's so much fun. So collaborative. And there's no ownership of jokes. There's no ownership of anything. Just it's just a lot of fun. That's the way it should be. They're kind of like little directors in their own yep. right because they're given sequences. Definitely. Yeah. And they, they're usually sequences that play to their strengths because. The people yeah. in charge, they, they're hired for a reason, yeah, and they're just kind of like, show me exactly. what you're doing. And watching them pitch it is the best. You know, some people, when they pitch, like, how they step through their drawings is just hilarious. And they're doing the voices and stuff. It's like, they're they're having so much fun, and when you see the people that really love what they do, it's, uh, you see it in the boards. It's super fun. So, yeah. yeah. I know there's no commentary on the, on the Blu-ray, which breaks my heart because I'm a commentary fan. Oh, right. You don't see a lot of those these yeah. days. <laughs> and Tony would be so good with that, too, because Tony is just like, he's got a story for everything. Everything that happened on that show, he's got, he's a great storyteller. He, he has a lot of fun with that, so I'm surprised. <laughs> All right, so thanks again, and uh, take care, and best of luck in your future Thank projects. Thank you so much for having me, and it was great talking with you. I appreciate it. And there you have it. That concludes my conversation with one of the editors of the 2020 CG animated feature film, Scoob. I hope you enjoyed listening to Ryan's stories as much as I did. And as I hinted in the intro, I hope you're enjoying the new format. For the time being, as I kind of uh, talked about in the previous episode, and as I wanted to talk uh, a little bit more in this episode, I've been releasing things as full chunks. I used to chop my interviews into roughly like 30 to 40 minute episodes. I felt like that was kind of the average commute time, bus ride. When I listen to podcasts, I'm not a big fan of like the two hour podcast. I generally try to avoid those, especially making those. And when I do end up listening to those, they're usually podcasts that I do in chunks. And that was ultimately where the kind of decision came down. If I'm listening to a two-hour podcast in chunks or I'm having a podcast being released to me in parts, it, I kind of felt like having the ability to decide when you listen to those chunks, having that agency was a little more important than any other convenience that comes with releasing them uh, the way I was previously. I am, however, really curious what you guys think. If you're liking getting the interviews this way in these larger, fuller chunks, I will still avoid a two-hour interview all in one kind of episode. That is still something I'm going to chop up into at least two parts. And I do have an interview coming up with uh, a couple of gentlemen who we had so much fun chatting and the conversation digressed and we covered a lot of stuff. And even though we went into it thinking we were going to do like a half an hour, we ended up doing, it was almost two and a half hours of conversation. So... When I do edit that down, that's an example of how I kind of want to move forward with this. So really, if, if you have any thoughts on the subject, feel free to reach out either on the uh, YouTube channel in the comments section, on the Facebook page in the uh, comments section, on the Instagram, on Twitter, pretty much all of the social media. You can find me there at uh, ScoobyDooCast or a podcast named Scooby-Doo. And while you're there, feel free to like, share, follow, and subscribe to all the various platforms. And uh, if you're enjoying this episode or any of the other episodes, sharing them on your social media, spreading the word that way is uh, it's a powerful tool. And uh, I encourage you to do it if you want to support the show. Also, if you do get the show off of something like iTunes, 
uh, while you're there rating and reviewing the show, it really does help with the algorithms and getting the show kind of into the eyes and ears of people who um, might be interested in checking this out. And as always, there is the blog, scoobydoocast.wordpress.com, where I haven't really been posting a ton, but I have been posting uh, the Apocalypse Variations, as I've mentioned on previous podcasts, where I am interviewing, in short interviews, artists who have worked on Scooby Apocalypse, doing uh, variant covers primarily, and they talk about their process and share some of their process work that is uh, posted there for you to see. I do have a new one in the wings. Uh, The questions have been sent off. I'm just waiting for them to come back. So I'm looking forward to that and getting another one of those up. I'm really enjoying doing those. I really like having the ability to not just have like the audio interviews, but also the text interviews. I mean, you can't really do a full show interview on somebody who literally just did like a cover of a comic book. So it's a really nice way to still include that perspective and uh, and that history in a really palatable, manageable uh, sort of way where I think everybody involved is happy with it. So check that out. And that's pretty much all I have for this time around. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show, for downloading and listening and uh, letting me take up some space in your day. It's always a cool thing to see that people are listening and responding. I mean, I'd be doing this for myself, but it's rewarding to know that there's all of you out there that are along for the ride. So appreciate it. Hope everybody is staying safe, staying well. There's a lot more conversations to come. I'm really excited to get these things out there uh, so you guys can hear them. So stay tuned, and we will catch you next time on a podcast named Scooby-Doo. What the bad guys say when they play where the law forbids. Would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for you meddling kids. This is how we solve the mystery. Bye.